So last Sunday, after our service, I went to play tennis with uh, our guest speaker from last week. I don't know if you remember uh, the family that came, uh, the one that had attended Trinity with Irene and I, who is now studying uh, at Wheaton. Uh, but we went to play tennis, and uh, <laughs> I see Ryan back there, and we'd play tennis together. Anyway, I played tennis with, with him, and we were joined by two other people. And we actually played uh, a set. And I took a particular strategy when we were playing. And this was because being out of shape, and this being the only the second time I played tennis in I think about 10 or so years, I went to a energy conserving strategy, which was to try to volley everything and end points really quickly. The problem with this strategy, and uh, Will was playing with me as my partner, <laughs> but the problem with this strategy was I kept missing the same shot over and over and over again. I kept trying to volley it and I would just hit it out of bounds and I'd do the same thing and I'd hit it out of bounds again. I did it like, I don't know, five or six times. And Will never questioned me once, like, why are you trying to volley this shot when you keep missing? And after the set, Gordon came up to me and said, so he had been watching from the side, he said, you're not setting your feet. You keep overrunning the ball. That's why you keep hitting it out of bounds. But I had just kept making that same mistake over and over again. In our passage today, we have someone who keeps making the same mistake over and over again. Of course, tennis is a lot less serious than the other kinds of mistakes that we can make in life. Because sin, what is the effect of sin in our lives? Sin wreaks devastation, not only to ourselves, but also to the community, the lives of those around us. It's not hard to look around at our world and see the absolutely devastating effect that various people's sins, some great people, some small people, have on our culture, have on the world around us. And as a culture, we have a very hard time dealing with sin. In one sense, we have a hard time even just knowing what it is. Uh, think about if uh, you've lived through a few changes in our culture, how our culture has entirely changed in its view of what is right and what is wrong. When I was young, racism was taken as not something that most people were very ashamed of. It was not a big deal. Um, I remember growing up and being subjected to many racist taunts. And so there was a sense in which racism was no big deal in America of the 1970s and 1980s. Today, no one would want to be called a racist because all of a sudden that sin has become of overwhelming importance or viewed as overwhelmingly evil in our culture. On the other hand, in the time that I was growing up, uh, living together was something that was very frowned upon. And so if you were not married and you were living with your partner, that would be something that would be viewed as very, very wrong. 
Today, that's no big deal. And so we tend to have a very distorted view of sin in our culture. And even as Christians, we have a difficult time thinking about sin. We either tend to minimize it, or when the consequences of sin descend upon our lives, be absolutely devastated by it. In our passage today, God, through the life of Abraham, gives us a very interesting perspective on sin and helps us see how God views sin. And to just give you the answer right at the beginning, one of the things that we see here is that we should take sin way more seriously than we do. We should take sin way more seriously than we do. But on the other hand, when we face the consequences of sin, we ought to have far more hope than we often have. And so as we read through our passage today, we saw the account of Abraham, and you would be excused for thinking, haven't we already gone through this passage before? Because this is the exact same kind of thing that Abraham had done at the very beginning of his journey. If you remember back in Genesis 12, when God first called Abraham to leave his father's home, he and Sarah had gone down to Egypt, and they had told to Pharaoh, she is my sister. And Sarah had said of Abraham, he is my brother. And now, in Genesis 20, some 25 years later, after 25 years of walking with God as God called him to sojourn, as he, God called him to travel throughout the land, we see that Abraham falls into the same sin again. And so as we come together into this passage this morning, we can see because Abraham, in a way, stands for each one of us. Abraham's journey with God throughout his life becomes a metaphor for the journey that each of us needs to take in our lives as we learn to walk with the Lord. And so let's come together uh, in prayer and ask that God would help us learn how it is that we are to walk with him. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for the life of Abraham. We thank you for the lessons that we can learn through his life. Because the reality is, is that all of us struggle in this journey to trust you and learn to walk as your people and learn to walk faithfully with you. But in the life of Abraham, we can see both the consequences of his sin, but also the grace and mercy that you showed Abraham. And the grace and mercy that is in each one of us as you deal with your people as you teach us to trust in you. And so as we look at this passage together this morning, we ask that you would help us, on the one hand, learn how is it that we can turn away from the sins that have come to embed themselves so deeply in our lives, and how it is that we can find grace and hope as we see the consequences of both our sins and others. How we can come to a true and living God 
both hates sin and yet has provided for sinners that we can return to you. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen. I find enormous hope in this account of Abraham's life. Because all of us struggle, oftentimes over and over, with the same kind of habitual sins in our own lives. And here we see something that has become a habitual sin in the life of Abraham. Now, my family has been here now in Pittsburgh for about two and a half years. Uh, we've been here at this church. And many of you have uh, spent a good amount of time with us and enough time that you probably see the kind of brokenness that is in our family, how we oftentimes struggle with different things. And I hope that in our struggles that you, that you find hope too, because we all share that struggle against sin. And on the one hand, we have to learn to take sin seriously in the way that God does. But at the same time, we also have to see how God is faithful despite our failures. And so how is it that Abraham falls again into this sin? Sin at its root is a rejection of the authority and the sovereignty of God. Because when we say that God is sovereign, we, we, we in a sense say he's in charge, right? He's the one who has lordship, not only over our, our lives, but over all this creation. But when we sin, what we do is we act against the nature of God. God's law is good. It, in a sense, comes from who he is. Right and wrong are those things that are either in accordance with the nature of God or are a rejection of the nature of God. Look at what Abraham says when in our passage we saw how Abimelech had taken Sarah, God had come to Abimelech in a dream and warned him, you and all your household are dead men. And Abimelech calls Abraham to him and asks him, why have you deceived me in this way? Have you, why have you brought this sin, this guilt upon me and my household? And Abraham says, I did it because I thought. There is no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Now, there's an irony here, right? Abraham, in explaining why he has uh, performed this deception, says, I did it because there is no fear of God at all in this place. Now, when you look at this passage, who is the person who fears God? It's not Abraham, right? Because he is deceiving other people. But it's this heathen king who, out of fear of God, now calls Abraham before him and returns Abraham's wife to him. But what is it that Abraham has seen in this time? So we saw that sin happened in Genesis 12, when God had called Abraham to go out and wander the land. And we see it now again. 25 years later. What's happened in the interim? Abraham has lived a very full 25 years, right? He has, uh, <laughs> after that experience in Egypt, 
become a very wealthy man because of the blessing of God. He's acquired herds and servants and become a very great household. He's seen God work through him in, some, in the uh, account we just saw of Lot, where Abraham had interceded for Lot. And this is not the first time he's interceded for Lot. If you remember when the kings of Sodom and Gomorrah had been uh, captured along with some other cities that had rebelled against these other kings, Abraham had gone forth and rescued Lot. And then he had interceded for Lot again when God had come to him and said, I have come to judge Sodom and Gomorrah. And the last time we saw Abraham, Abraham was looking out over the plain at the smoking ruin of these two cities, a very visual reminder of the power of God and his hatred of sin and wickedness. And now in this context where Abraham has seen God's power and seen God's wrath against sin, he tells his deception. And so somehow he does not trust God to save him, to deliver him and his household, though now we see that this is exactly what God does for him again. And I think we can see there some parallel to our own lives. Because what has God done for you and me? We were all in a place where we were doomed to destruction. And when we receive Christ, what we're acknowledging is that because of our own sin, we were condemned before God. And yet, God has provided salvation to us through his Son. And we have received that promise of eternal light and the guarantee of the fulfillment of that promise in the Holy Spirit that has come into each one of us that has received Christ. And we see that just like Abraham, we are saved. And we are saved not by our own strength, but because of God's faithfulness. Now, in looking at this parallel between Abraham and ourselves, we might make an objection, right? Because do we have that same relationship with God as Abraham did? And so, you know, when we read this passage, we think, well, of course God is going to save Abraham because God had called Abraham and was the one who had told him to go out into the land. And he had promised to Abraham that through him, all peoples would be blessed. And so Abraham should have trusted God. We can see that. We can see that Abraham should have trusted God. But do we have those same guarantees? Think about Christians in persecuted lands. We know that many Christians, in fact, more this century, have been martyred than in all the centuries coming before does God still save? And so certainly he saved Abraham and Sarah in this passage. But will he save us when we face difficulty? We know people who have suffered. And God did not provide the kind of deliverance that we were hoping for. And does God speak to us 
in the same way that he came to Abraham and spoke to him. But if we look at Scripture, we see that, yes, that's true. God doesn't speak to us in the same way that he spoke to Abraham. What the book of Hebrews tells us is that God has spoken to us in a better way. Because in these latter times, God speaks to us by his Son. He has sent his Son. And as we progress forward through history, and we see the working out of God, in one sense, what we see is God's relationship with his people never changes. His love and care for his people is the same throughout history. And so God's relationship, in one sense, with Abraham is no different than our relationship with God today. But what we do see is that as we move forward through the history of God's plan of salvation, that more and more is revealed. And we see the outworking of God's plan for salvation. And so from the standpoint of understanding and knowledge of what God has shown us, actually we stand in a far better place than God's people back in the Old Testament. But both then and now, God is still in charge. But why is it that sometimes the people of God suffer and that other times they're delivered? Well, in one sense, that's up to God, right? God decides when he delivers and when he allows his people to suffer. But is there some kind of principle that we can understand? Why is it that God saves in this instance? And when is it in our lives that we can know that God will deliver? Well, what is it that God does in Abraham's life? Does God always rescue Abraham and his household from the kind of consequences of the sin that they engage in? Well, as we follow the life of Abraham, we see that the answer there is no. Sometimes God allows Abraham to experience certain consequences of his sin. Sometimes God, as in this case, delivers Abraham from certain consequences of his sin. But what is the consistent purpose that we can see in Abraham's life. That consistent purpose is that God is always working for the salvation of Abraham and his family. Can you see that? And so when Abraham and Sarah come up with this plan because they're looking for an heir and they drag poor Hagar into this arrangement, and through Hagar we have the birth of Ishmael, that also was a lack of faith on the part of Abraham, right? He did not trust God for the heir that God had promised. And so there's the sin that occurs. And that sin, in a sense, bears fruit, right? A fruit, in fact, of entire nations that come from uh, Abraham and Hagar instead of Abraham and Sarah. But God is always working 
to bring Abraham closer to him, to move forward with Abraham in God's plan of salvation for Abraham. And that is true for you and I also. Because what is important to God is not necessarily the same priorities we have. And that's actually why we have struggled trusting God, right? Because we have certain plans, we have certain desires and hopes that we have. There's certain things that I want to accomplish in life. There's the bucket list that I have. There's the kind of career that I have, want to have. There's, the, there's uh, the hopes and dreams that I have. And I know that God's plan for my life very well may not include some of those things. And so for a long period of time in my life, one of the goals in my life was I wanted children. And for children, I needed a wife. And for many, many years, uh, that did not happen. And so I really wanted it to happen. And there were many times that I failed to trust God in that struggle. And uh, part of it is I knew that in terms of what God wanted to work in my life, that that didn't have to happen. And because I desired something for myself, that God did not necessarily desire for me, and I knew that he might not desire it for me, I had a difficult time trusting God in that area of life. And I think that that is one struggle that is common for many of us. We don't know God's plans for us. And we, but what we do know about God is that sometimes his priorities don't line up with ours. What is it that God wants of us? God wants to bring each and every one of you home to him. God wants to work for the sanctification of each and every one of you. He is preparing each and every one of you to spend eternity with him. And he will allow nothing to come in the way of your sanctification. He will allow nothing to come in the way of your coming into an infinitely close relationship with him. And that's very comforting. Because one of the things that you can know is that no matter what happens, all of it, as Romans tells us, happens for our good. Because God uses all the events of our lives to bring us closer with him. Someone can sin against you. Someone can do wickedness, evil against you. And yet they cannot help but accomplish God's good purpose in your life. Uh, the paradigm example of that is Joseph, right? I mean, the kind of things that happen to Joseph are evil. His brothers throw him into a pit to die. And then they think, oh, why should we have the blood of our brother's, brother on our hands? Let's just sell him to slave traders. So he's sold off to this slave caravan that's headed towards Egypt. And then Joseph is bought by Potiphar and Potiphar's wife, lies, which results in Joseph unjustly going to prison for seven years. And then when Joseph's brothers finally appear before him in Egypt, and they're concerned because they think now Joseph has this power, what will he do to us when our father is gone? 
And after his father passes away, Joseph calls his brothers to him, and he says, you meant it for evil, but God meant it for good. And so we see this consistent purpose of God. God will not fail to bring his children closer to him. And what we see here in Abraham's life, when we think, why is it that God saves in one instance, while in another instance we see, in a sense, sin just having its full effect? And it's because God consistently follows this principle. God will always act to secure his people and bring them closer to him. Both then and now, God is in charge. His purpose is our sanctification and our salvation. And so sometimes God allows Abraham and Lot to suffer the consequences of their actions. Sometimes God delivers. But these actions always serve to bring us closer to him. And so... Abraham, in terms of sin and understanding how sin is working in Abraham's life, it begins with this rejection of God's authority and sovereignty. And yet we see that God is still the one who is sovereign. Because Abraham says, there's no fear of God in this place. But those words kind of come back to haunt him, don't they? Because it's Abimelech who fears God and then calls Abraham to him. And Abraham, who's supposed to be the prophet of God, says, well, I didn't trust God. <laughs> and yet, God shows Abraham that he still does have that power to deliver. And in fact, the consequence that Abraham has brought upon himself uh, has perhaps uh, shown that in spades. Uh, some of you may wonder. So here we have Abraham, who's 100 years old. And he's saying of this woman, she is my sister. And she's... 90 years old. And um, so there's two possibilities here. Why is it that Abimelech here takes this 90-year-old woman to, into his harem, as it is? Uh, you know, how attractive are 90-year-old women? Well, we have a number of women in our congregation who are close to that, and yes, they're very beautiful ladies. But they're perhaps not tempting in the way that we see here. Now, two possibilities. One is that in terms of how God chose to work in Sarah's life, that she is, at 90, still incredibly beautiful and could probably appear on one of those fashion magazines that we have in the grocery stores today. That's one possibility. And it's a very likely possibility in, in view of what Abraham says, um, because he does say, you know, it is his fear that because someone may desire Sarah for their wife, they would kill him and take her. Uh, one possibility that uh, is also there is that Abraham, as he is now traveling, has become an extremely wealthy man. And so it is possible that at this point in time in Abraham's life, the reason that Abimelech takes Sarah is because, you know, we all, we all know that in the ancient world, many times marriages were formed for what reason? Political alliances, right? And so when this very wealthy and powerful man moves into the territory, the natural inclination of Abimelech might have been to do what? To form an alliance with Abraham. And so 
in one sense, it's very possible that Abraham has brought about the very situation that he didn't want because he has said, Sarah is my sister. And perhaps it is for that reason that Abimelech takes this 90-year-old woman to be his wife. Uh, we don't know. Uh, but in either case, we do know this, that Abraham's actions represent a distrust of God and have brought this consequence upon his life. Now, it began with this rejection of God's authority and sovereignty. But what a kind of effect have, has this had in Abraham's life? We can see that it has had a very distorting effect. Because this has become part of who Abraham is in a part of his distrust of God. Look at what it says uh, when uh, Abraham explains his actions. He says, first of all, he says, um, uh, there's no fear of God at all in this place, and they will kill me because of my wife. Then look at what he says in verse 13. And when God caused me to wander from my father's house, I said to her, this is the kindness you must do me. At every place to which we come, say of me, he is my brother. What does this tell us? We have two accounts of rulers taking Abraham's wife, right? But it apparently is not two times that this has happened. I mean, we see just right here at the beginning of this passage. From there, Abraham journeyed toward the territory in the, the Negev and lived between Kadesh and Shur. And then he Sojourn in Gerar. He's traveling from place to place to place to place. And what does he do at every place? Lies. He lies about his relationship with Sarah because of his lack of fear of God and his fear of the world. This has become a habitual sin in Abraham's life. And so if it is indeed the case that it's actually the lie and his own status within the land that has brought this particular consequence upon him, it's just become such a habit that they've never stopped doing it. And here we start to see how sin's consequences start to spread. Because this is not the last time we're going to see this story, right? One of the things that when you become parents, or I have my cousin visiting me today, and they have now become third-time grandparents, which is making me feel older. Um, but when you become a parent, you see your children start to grow. What's the, the thing that happens to every parent? You see your kid doing something, and you don't like it, but you also realize something. That's exactly what I do. And so uh, my family's watching, so I'm not going to say what some of those things are. Because <laughs> then they'll say, see, it's okay that I do this. You do it. Uh, <laughs> uh, but every parent sees their own sins in their children. And Isaac apparently learns this behavior from Abraham. Because Isaac, in his turn, will likewise do the same thing. Chinese church, what kind of things do we see passed down from generation to generation? Well, there's certain things in our culture that are not exactly healthy. There's perhaps a uh, 
I'll tell it this way. Like, when you're a parent, what kind of people do you want your children to hang around? I had a friend talk to me about this, and I thought, oh, wow, that makes a lot of sense. So he said, you know, my kids, what, who, who do I want them to hang around? Do I want them to hang around really ultra-successful people? Or do I want them to hang around people of good moral character? Really rich people or really good people? And when you think about that question, you know, the answer is fairly obvious. We want our children to hang around people who have good moral character. We want children to grow up uh, and, and, and be around other people who, but what do we train our children to do? What do we emphasize to them as they're growing up? Uh, you know, what do we emphasize to our own children? Well, we tell them, you have to get good grades. You have to go to a really good school. You have to have success. But then when we think about others' kids and you know, what we want them to be like when our children are around them, we want them to be good people. And so there's a way in which our fear our lack of trust in God, really, that pathology, in a sense, really kind of just comes out of who we are. And we pass our own lack of faith in God through our families to our children. And we see here the kind of possible effects of Abraham's sin. First, he leads Abimelech and his household into possibly committing a grave sin, if not for the intervention of God. But think about what else is at stake. From the beginning of Genesis, when God has promised deliverance to his people, and now in Genesis 12, we see that that is going to work through Abraham because Abraham receives a promise that all nations will be blessed through him and his family. And those that bless him will be blessed, and those that curse him will be cursed. And that promised Messiah is coming down through this family, and it has to be the child of Abraham and Sarah. In a sense, what Abraham is doing here is he is willing to throw away the blessing and the salvation of God for the entire human race because he's afraid Abimelech will want his wife. No salvation for anyone because of his lack of trust for God. The fear, lack of the fear of God in this world. If Vladimir Putin feared God, Ukrainians wouldn't be fighting for their lives in their country. Africans wouldn't be starving because the grain from Ukraine can't leave the country. Sin has incredibly devastating effects on our world, on our communities, in our own lives. But what do we see here in terms of God's plan and God's salvation? The good thing for each one of us is that our salvation is not dependent on our own strength and our own faithfulness. Because look at how God works in this weird dynamic going on between Abraham and Abimelech. So God has already appeared to Abimelech in this dream and saying, return the man's wife to him. 
or you and your family are dead, and the prophet must pray for you, or you're all dead. Why does God do this? He's already appeared to Abimelech. He can communicate with Abimelech. Why does he need Abraham? It's a really interesting thing here, because God has already purposed Abraham to be his instrument of salvation to the world, and Abraham does not get that. He doesn't get it. And he doesn't act according to it. But God is persistent. He will not stop using Abraham to be his means of salvation for everyone. And so God tells Abimelech, you go to this man. I mean, what kind of prophet is this? Uh, <laughs> he's a deceitful prophet who doesn't take care of his wife. But it must be Abraham. He is the prophet. You go to this intermediary who will intercede for you, and you and your family will be delivered. Well, who does this foreshadow? Ultimately, it foreshadows Christ. But beyond Christ, think about what it also foreshadows. How is this world going to come to know the gospel of Jesus Christ? Just like with Abraham, it is you and I who are called to be God's instrument of salvation to this world. When God created this church, he created it to be his presence in this world. He created the church to be his instrument of salvation to a lost and dying world. And this is the urgency that we face. Abraham was the one through whom the family would come that would result in the Messiah who would save the entire world. And the family of God is likewise the instrument of God for the salvation of the entire world. And we see here how Abraham's lack of faith hindered him, and yet God persisted in using him as that instrument. And yet we can see, like, if Abraham realized the import of his decision, the importance of these things that he is doing, he should not have done these things. He should have acted as the instrument that God desired. He should have been a blessing to the people around him. He should have given a more clear and accurate testimony to the God to whom he served. And likewise, you and I. One of the things we know about the church is that the church is meant to be the body of Christ, each of us gifted in unique ways. And this community, this church, our families will not be the same if each one of us doesn't use the kind of gifts that God has entrusted to you to serve his people to be his instruments as he's intended. But here's the thing about God. I mean, does God need the, excuse me, need the church? He doesn't need the church. He doesn't need you or me. And when we look at ourselves and our own weaknesses, we think, why does God choose to use such fallible people? But there's one reason. So, you know, oftentimes, the criticism of the world directed to the church is this, is you're hypocrites. Well, everyone's a hypocrite, right? I mean, that's what Romans tells us. 
on the last day, God will judge people. And what, what's the standard by which he'll judge them? To those who have been given the law, who know the law of God, who have received the law of God and understood this is what God has said, and they disobeyed it, and here Paul was talking about the Jews, they'll be judged according to the law. But to those to whom the law was not given, what are they judged by? They're judged by their own consciences, right? And so all of us will be judged according to what we said was right and wrong, and what God will reveal to all people on the last day is that they did not follow their own judgment of right and wrong. And in a sense, what they've done is that they've judged other people for doing things that they themselves have done. And so we're all judged according to our consciences. And it is very true because as Christians, we acknowledge and we say, this is the law of God. And the world sees that we don't do it. But what the world also needs to see is God's power of transformation. Because God is in the process of changing his people. And you and I are not going to be the same in 10 years as we are today. We are not the same today as we were 10 years ago if we've been walking with the Lord. And what the watching world should see is that in one sense, Christians are people who say, we're hypocrites, and we know it, and we're repenting of it. And the one thing that we can do that God can't do is this. We can show the transformation, the sanctification of God in our lives. Because what this world and all the people in it do see is how devastating sin is in their own lives. And so going back to the first point of this message, we don't take sin as seriously as we ought to, right? Because we're offending a holy God. Jonathan Edwards' famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I wish I could preach like that because it was reported that people were hanging on to the pews when he preached that, fearful that they would fall into the pit that he was describing. There is a holy God who sees each and every one of your actions. And he will judge you for each one of those actions. And so we don't take sin nearly as seriously as we ought, because we are offending an infinitely powerful God who is holy. And yet at the same time, one of the things that has been impressed on me, especially in these last few weeks, when I'm counseling people who are in difficulty, the thing that I always try to impress upon them is there is hope. Because once the consequences of sin descends, oftentimes what people lose is they lose hope. And they see their wretchedness. And they think, I can't be saved. But in those situations, what we see here is this. God never gives up on his people. Abraham is not acting as a prophet. But God says, I'm going to make you into the kind of man who is. And God continually works in Abraham's life, persisting in calling him to be his instrument. And even when Abraham fails, as he does in this case, God still says, you're still my prophet. We are still his people. You and I fail, but God calls us to be faithful, to return to him, and to be his witnesses to a watching world. Let's pray.
Father God, I know that in my life, just like Abraham, I have failed over and over and over again. And yet you never cease to call me, to call my brothers and sisters here in this church to be your witnesses, to be the ones through whom you will bring salvation to this lost and dying world. And Lord, I pray this morning that as we look at this episode for the life of Abraham, that we would see some of the urgency to be your witnesses. You had called Abraham to be your prophet. And you've also called your church, you've called us to go out into all the world and teach them to obey all that you have commanded us. Help us, Lord, see the goodness and the greatness of your salvation. Help us to use our gifts for your service. Help us to stop sitting, if we are sitting on the sidelines, to be wasting those gifts. Help us, if we're sinning, to turn away from the sin that has entrapped us. And help us instead learn to be your hands and feet, your instrument of blessing to a lost and dying world. And we pray this in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.